This is Lead Like It Matters to God, and I'm Rich Stearns. I started this podcast to explore a critical leadership question. How should Christian leaders live out their faith at work? Over the course of my career, I've been the CEO of a toy company, a luxury goods company, and a large Christian ministry. And I've always believed that a leader's character is more important to God than a leader's accomplishments. On each episode, I'll be speaking with a seasoned Christian leader to explore their leadership journey and the values and qualities they believe to be most important in a leader. Today, my guest is Bill Haslam, former two-term governor of Tennessee and also the former mayor of Knoxville, Tennessee. Prior to his political career, Governor Haslam also served as president of the Pilot Oil Corporation. Governor Haslam has a new book coming out soon entitled Faithful Presence, The Promise and the Peril of Faith in the Public Square. On a personal note, I got to know Bill 20 years back when he served on the World Vision Board of Directors while I was the president. And on an even more personal note, Bill and I once traveled down the Rio Negro River in the Amazon on a World Vision trip and found ourselves sleeping head to foot in the bunks of the cramped men's quarters of our small medical boat. So, Governor Haslam, thank you for coming on my podcast today. And since I got to know you before you were a governor, is it okay if I call you Bill? That works. You left out the best part of the Rio Negro story, which was uh, Rich, as our leader, decided we needed a break from the the cramped conditions of the boat. So we checked into a a riverside hotel um, whose running water, I think they literally just ran straight out of the river uh, to us uh, and whose beds uh, consisted mainly of local bugs and other uh, other indigenous species. So uh, we, we've always thanked Rich for his incredible upgrade on that trip. That, that was a, a memorable hotel. And uh, in fact, I remember one of our party, uh, she walked into her room for the first time and there was an insect on the wall that was probably five inches long. And she let out a shriek that uh, probably, you know, woke everybody around the whole village. But uh, that was quite quite a trip, Bill. Most of us slept in our clothes. I'll put it that That's way. That's right, because the sheets were not not ready for prime time. <laughs> So, Bill, you know, I still remember the day when you came to our World Vision board meeting and you told us that you had decided to run for mayor of Knoxville. You know, a lot of people look at the divisive state of our politics right now and they ask why anyone in their right mind would run for public office. You could have obviously just continued in your business career with a lot less hassles. So what was it that motivated you to make that decision to jump into politics? You know, I had some people that approached me and I literally laughed when they came up to me and said, you're the wrong guy. I have zero interest. Um, but they said, well, will you think and pray about it? And it's kind of hard to say no, that I won't, I, won't, I won't even agree to think and pray about it. And so it did. And over a period of time, uh, I literally kind of felt my heart pulled toward uh, serving in that way. And it sounds kind of corny, but you realize that, you know, the role that government plays, there's a way to leverage yourself uh, in a way that can't happen in a lot of other medium, in a lot of other professions. And so what I quickly saw was, um, you know, I'd always been really involved in our city, chairing this board and doing that and uh, this thing. But what I quickly saw was you could make way more difference uh, as a mayor than you could in any of those roles. And like I said, I, I didn't go as a as a uh, excited, willing volunteer to, to a public role, but I'm so glad I did. You know, uh, one of the things you mentioned in your new book is how 
the difference between public service and politics and working for a, a company. And you said in a company, everybody agrees on the direction and the strategy and what we're trying to accomplish. But in government, you said something like nobody agrees uh, on what we're trying to accomplish or how we should accomplish it. You know, can you elaborate on that a little yeah, bit? I mean, it, you know, in, in your in your life prior to World Vision, when you were selling uh, China, um, the uh, that's the dining kind of China, not the country. Um, the um, uh, everybody knew that's what you were trying to do, and so you had from the board of directors to an entry level employee, everyone knew that. In government, there's not that same sense. You're your board of directors is a city council or a state legislature or a, a U.S. Congress, and they're all there for their own reasons. And if you asked your citizens, your customers, what do you want out of us? You would get, you know, a hundred different answers from, I want more sidewalks in my neighborhood. Do I want you to pay teachers more? Do I want you to cut my taxes to I want you to provide better services for disabled people? And they're all valid goals. That That's the big thing people I think don't realize about government is it's this competing uh, desire uh, for uh, worthy but not all obtainable at one time goals. So like so people say, well, I want you to pay our teachers more and I want you to put down more sidewalks and I want you to recruit more businesses here. And I want, um, I want you to revitalize these uh these kind of depressed areas of town, uh, but I don't want you to raise my taxes. And <laughs> that, that's that's the, the the interesting thing about uh, a public job is the competing but very worthy goals. Yeah, I mean, you're really threading a needle. And, you know, the old maxim, you can't please all the people all the time is very, very true in, in a political life. Yeah, well, I mean, think about this. If you win in a race, if you win an election 55 to 45, that's 10 points. That that's a that's almost a landslide in today's terms. Okay, we haven't had a president. We've had one presidential election in the last, you know, forty years that was won by more than that. I think, but that still means fifty-five, forty-five. That still means almost half of the people didn't want you there. So you kind of have to get used to this idea that a lot of people aren't aren't all that excited about you being their leader. That's got to be a do a job on your ego because I know you know having been the CEO of a couple of companies myself, right. um, you know. Everybody's nice to the CEO. Everybody affirms the CEO, and and uh, you know you get a lot of adulation, and um, you don't have forty five percent of the employees that you know want to overthrow your your leadership <laughs> and and get a di different leader in there. So that's a difference. You know, Bill, you were you were kind enough to write an endorsement for my new book, Lead Like It Matters to God, and in that book, I make the assertion that the values a leader embraces may actually be more important than the outcomes they achieve. And as you spent 15 or so years now in public office, how important were your values in helping you navigate the swirling currents of today's politics? You know, it, it, it's, it's a great question because, as we talked about earlier, there, you're going to have people that disagree with you a lot in this world, in the, in the political world. Um, and... A lot of times they don't understand why can't you fill in the blank? And for the reasons I said, you're you're trying to balance competing needs. Uh, but within that, you have to know, like, here's why I'm doing this. And there has to be, a, I think, a sense of calling, actually, that reminds you, well, here's why I came to serve in this way. And so I think you're right. The, the, the values piece, I think, is what most citizens look around and feel like is missing today. I mean, we have a country that's not only divided, 
but we're mad at the other side. And we even question the other people's motives uh, for, for the things that they've decided. And a lot of folks are kind of given up on almost on the prospect of our democracy being able to solve our problems. But I think at the root of that is people who say, here's what I believe and here's why I think this is the right thing to do. And I'm not really going to change my mind because the wind blows in a different direction. And I think after a while, people kind of sense that. Yeah, I mean, to say it another way, um, you know, if you if I use the metaphor of politics being, uh, you know, you're traveling somewhere in a storm, right? Because um, it's always a storm in politics. Uh, right. You have to have a, a compass or a north star to help you navigate, or you just get blown to and fro by every political wind, right? You don't know what you stand for, and and yeah, uh, I, you need I to know where you're right. headed and what you're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, you asked earlier about the differences with business. That's the other thing that's different in this versus business. Some things, by the way, are very similar. You have to hire great people. You have to understand the numbers of your business or your government. All So many things are very, very similar. But the big difference is, like I said, everybody doesn't agree on purpose. And the other thing is you're doing it all out in the open. You're doing it in public. It's it's like you're, a, you're an actor on Broadway or you're a cornerback in the NFL or whatever you want to say. And so everybody has an opinion about what you're doing. And your North Star analogy is a really good one. If you want to be subject to the those opinions, um, you're going to be swinging to and fro all the time. You know, I want to segue into your new book, Faithful Presence. And uh, you sent me an advanced copy of the book, which I have now read cover to cover. And I just want to say to our listeners today that I really believe this is a brilliant and hopeful book, and it's a very important book for the times we're living in right now. You know, for every Christian out there trying to discern how to apply their beliefs and faith values to their political decisions, I think your book, Bill, is a, is a must read. It really is a wonderful book. I want, I want to read a quote from the introduction of your book, uh, and here it is. I'm writing this book because, like you, I'm deeply concerned about the direction of our country. I'm also writing because, though the idea may sound far-fetched to some, I think people of faith can and should play a leading role in healing the wounds of our country. Too often, the words and actions of Christians have done more to inflict those wounds than to heal them. But there is a better way. So, Bill, I, I think we would all like to find that better way uh, in politics. Maybe you can elaborate a bit on where you think we are as a country today and a bit about your belief that there is a better way. Yeah, thanks. Um, and I appreciate the, the warm uh, notes on the book. Um, you know, I, again, it's no surprise to anybody. We're, we're incredibly divided uh, if you look at where we are as a country. But I think what makes it unique today is due to social media and the ability to choose your own news, you can choose who you get your news from. Um, we've become more, um, we've become more solidified in our views and not just our views that we're right, but that the other folks are wrong. And there's a way that uh, sociologists can measure what they call motivation attribution asymmetry, which is um, uh, how much I think not only are you wrong, but you have bad motives. And, Ten years ago, so we know it's more than that now, the, 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 the motivation of symmetry, in other words, I think if I'm on one side and you're on the other, uh, the, the difference in Americans and, and the, on the right and on the left is more, was more than that between Israelis and Palestinians in terms of I, not only do I disagree, but I think you have bad motives in what you believe. 
So we're mad at each other. We're at each other's throats. We think that people have bad motives in it. And people, like I said, are are growing kind of discouraged that democracy can solve our biggest problems. Here's where I think people of faith can help. Uh, First of all, we of all people should understand humility, right? If we really are uh, trying to follow uh, Jesus, one of the things we believe is that, you know, we're, we're all sinful, broken people. Uh, and so if I know that about myself and I know I'm a broken person, also knows that means I could be wrong. Uh, my political mentor was a guy named Howard Baker, who was a majority leader of the Senate, chief of staff to Reagan, ambassador to Japan. And he had a saying that was the always remember the other fellow might be right. And that kind of humility is what's missing of I'm going to go into this discussion with this thought of I could be wrong. I know what I believe. But I could be wrong on these things that aren't, you know, we're not talking about your core beliefs, but my approach to this problem. So I think that, number one, is as believers, we should have that kind of humility. The second thing is, you think about it, a lot of the conflict today is about this balance between justice. You know, remember the people out in the streets today saying no justice, no peace, Uh, but also mercy. We all know that, hey, I, 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 I need mercy myself. And People are asking for mercy and grace for themselves. We as believers ought to understand justice and mercy. We have a we have a God who came to answer that problem of needing justice, but doing it in a way that brought grace. And so those are two things that I think we can bring to the party, if you will, a sense of humility and this understanding of the balance between justice and mercy or truth and grace, however you want to put it. That's, that's really good stuff. And, uh, you know, I want to explore that humility um, issue again, because I think if we look at our political discourse right now in the U.S., and even the role Christians have played in that discourse, uh, humility doesn't seem to be one of the attributes that we're seeing a lot of evidence of. And I want to read two quotes from your book juxtaposed about humility. Uh, The first one is, uh, I know it's not original to you because I've heard it before, but It has been said that those who choose to seek the high road of humility in politics will never run into a traffic jam. I want to pause for a moment to let the humor of that sentence sink in. You're not going to run into a traffic jam on the the highway of humility. Uh, But here's the other quote from your book, uh, which really underscores what you just said. If there is one thing Christians should be known for in the public square, it is humility. Or put another way, if there's one thing we should not be known for, it is pride. Of all the sins we focus on and hope to erase from our lives and our communities, pride should be at the top of the list. So, Bill, the words humility and politician are rarely used in the same sentence. Uh, So elaborate a little bit on what does that look like for a politician to demonstrate humility? What would would that look like uh, for a politician who tries to do that? I think the first thing is to, you know, we should, in talking about this, acknowledge the degree of difficulty. You know, when, when, when they have the Olympics and they're doing dives off the high dive, they, they, they give a degree of difficulty. And it is hard. I mean, think about the very nature of politics. You're standing up and raising your hand and saying, I'm the man or I'm the woman to solve this city or state or country's problems. Um, you know, the, 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 the verse from uh, Philippians, you know, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, consider others better than yourselves. Well, no political consultant in the history of forever is given that advice. Uh, and so it is a difficult role to do that in. Um, 
But I think it's, again, it's part of our problem because if you think about today in politics, a lot of it is about running to be the, the center square on a game show. You know, people who this will get me attention. This will get me clicks. This will get me on the, you know, on the talk show on Sunday morning. But none of that's about solving problems. And so I think part of it, again, comes back to what we talked about. If you really feel like this is what I'm called to do, then you can have a different approach to how often do I need to see my name in the news and how much am I um, how much am I willing to, to not be the person on every Sunday morning talk show in order that I might actually solve problems? And I think that's the issue. I mean, the other thing, like I said, you know, Scripture's pretty rough on pride. Like I said, it's uh, uh, it, it's if you look at the the number of times it's mentioned, and uh, it, it's a little overwhelming. And it says, you know, the, it says both James and Peter use the exact same words to say, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I don't think that was uh, that you got an exclusion for that if you were going to run for political office. You know, even in the uh, non-political world, let's say the corporate world, or you might work for a hospital or a school system or whatever, but the words leadership and humility are not often found in the same sentence. You know, we don't think of leaders... Uh, being humble. You know, it, it seems like that it's a contradiction. I, I love the way Rick Warren described humility in his book, The Purpose Driven Life. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So, you know, as I think about humility, um, you know, humility doesn't mean we deny the giftedness that we have that God has given us. If we're capable in certain areas and we've got terrific skill sets, you can be confident in your skill sets and you don't have to deny those strengths in yourself to be humble. Uh, a humble leader really understands that there are people in the room, maybe just as capable or even more capable in certain areas, certainly more knowledgeable in certain areas than the leader is. And if I listen to them, if I listen to their contributions, if I have a team that works for me and I, I truly listen to what they think uh, about a particular issue, then I can uh, I can kind of release that God's giftedness from them, and I can make better decisions as a leader. So you know, a humble leader doesn't believe their own press clippings. You know, they uh, they take advice well, they listen to others carefully, and then they make decisions. You know, would you agree with that? I couldn't agree. I mean, you know, I know one of your things. You obviously have written about it, but it's been one of the things you talked about that. You know, the way we lead matters to God, um, you know, to, to, better, to, to borrow your books or part of your book's title. Um, and the, 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 hard, the hard thing about being a leader and being humble is nobody, you're, you're not set up for that, right? I mean, when you're the CEO of a business or, a, you know, a huge um, uh, nonprofit like you led, people treat you different. And they, you know, they, they either... They either tell you you're the greatest in the world or you're pond scum, but nobody's really giving you great feedback because that's not what people do for a CEO or a governor or a president or whatever it is. Uh, and so because of that, you, you have to realize when you're in a leadership role that it's, it's really easy to, uh, to mislead yourself. And one of those ways is, is what you just said, which is to thinking I have to be the answer for everything here. Uh, God has gifted you or he wouldn't have put you in that position that you're in. Uh, 
but he's given a lot of other people a lot of different gifts. And you miss it when you think somehow your gift is better rather than different. And so one of the things that I think great leaders learn how to do is to do little tricks to make it so they're open for that. Uh, but it starts with that realization that you don't have all the answers and you could be wrong. And one of the examples I give in my book is, you know, when you're governor, people really do treat you as different because you said you're, you know, you got state troopers around you everywhere you go and people stand up and clap every time you walk in a room, et cetera. So you had to work hard to have people actually take that initiative. And one of the things I did is we had a big conference table in the governor's office, you know, 14 people could sit around it. And I was at one end. Well, I, I realized as long as I was down there, people were just going to always defer to me. And so I literally moved my chair to the middle of the table uh, and our discussions over time got better. And people felt like not only can I, but I should engage here. You know, those symbolic things are important for a leader. And I know one of the things I used to do if I was in a big meeting with people, you know, to gather to make a, an important decision I would say something like this at the beginning of the meeting. I, I would say, look, I really want everyone to contribute here. I'm going to throw out some ideas. I want you to criticize my ideas. You know, the reason uh, you're here is to contribute to better decision making. And so you, you kind of give people permission to challenge the governor or the CEO. I want to shift a little. We've talked a lot about political leadership and your political career, um, but uh I want to talk a little bit about your business career prior to that. Um, you said a little bit about how the two arenas differ, but uh, uh, what, what are some of the other differences and similarities between leadership um, as a corporate CEO versus um, a governor or a mayor? Well, I think there are certain things that are similar in almost no matter what you're doing, whether it be corporate CEO, government, you're running a hospital, you're leading a church, whatever it is, whatever it is. Uh, and the first thing is, like I said, I, I do think that kind of that, that leadership that realizes it's not about you. The second thing is great leaders um, attract, select and attract and keep great people working for them. And I have I, I, I long ago came to the conclusion that these um, people who are, you know, standout, you know, maverick uh, Marlboro men, whatever you want to call them, leaders, uh, in, in, the, in the long run, it doesn't end well. That if you get those kind of ego-driven people, that I don't care how talented they are, they're not worth it. And so I think, again, that's true regardless of the, the enterprise. I think the other thing is, doesn't get talked about a lot is, but if you're the leader, you have to understand the basic numbers of, of your business. So at World Vision, you knew, hey, here's how much money we're committing to 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 uh, spend on behalf of the uh, of the least of these around the world. That means I need to be able to not just raise this money, but keep my overhead to this percentage of that if I'm going to put that much money out in the field. Uh, the same thing when you were working at Linux, you knew here's our we we have. If, our sales need to be this, our margin needs to be this, and our expenses need to be that. That you don't have to doesn't mean you have to be a, you know, an accountant or a, uh, you know, a, a, a math whiz, but you better understand the fundamental numbers of what you're doing. And then I think that the last thing is that's similar no matter what you're doing is you have to think what I'm doing really matters, and 
like I said, I, I don't think there's a, a distinction between the, the secular and the spiritual here. Um, you, you have to feel like this is where I'm supposed to be, and it deserves every bit of of, uh, of talent that I've been given. You know, one thing that uh, one thing I think that happens is uh, as Christians, we're called to kind of bring our faith values into the workplace in appropriate ways, and to be guided by our Christian values in terms of how we behave, how we treat other people, how we conduct each other. In in your book, you mentioned more than one incident where um, making a decision based on your values cost you something. Um, uh, and I, I say in my book that sometimes being a Christian in the workplace and trying to abide by these biblical values instead of the prevailing corporate culture, it doesn't always benefit you. Usually it does. I mean, most employers want people of integrity, humility, vision, courage, perseverance, all of those great uh, leadership values. But from time to time, you have to make a decision. And if you make it based on your Christian values, it could cost you something. Have, have you got any examples of that? Sure. And let me say, I mean, I think your points are really good one, Rich. And like, think about politically, there's certain things that, uh, and by the way, I'm, I'm one of these that I, I don't, Scripture is really clear that we should we should feed the hungry and care for the poor. It's not as clear about how we do that. You know, there's certain so th those folks who say hey, this is the Christian answer to that problem. There, there are certain things I think Scripture is really clear about, but there's others that are we get the advice, you know, feed the hungry. We're not told exactly how we're supposed to do that. So to think there's a Democrat or Republican idea to answer to that is not true. But I, I think your point is, if you think about, there's certain things that Jesus was pretty liberal about, or the liberal's point of the argument, if you would be, um, would be, I mean, his concern for the poor and oppressed people today would say, well, that feels like that fits into the liberal spectrum. On the other hand, his view of of uh, sexuality, people would say, well, I'm not so certain. You know, that, that sounds like that might be on the conservative side of things. Uh, and so uh, because of that, you end up, there's times when I thought I made decisions because of my faith that one day would have the left really mad at me and the next day would have the right really mad at me. But both I was making because of what I felt like my faith asked. You know, you know, the you've really hit on something that is uh a passion of mine around politics, and that is that uh, for a Christian um, to be, quote, owned by either political party is probably not the way of a Christian in politics. That as Christians in politics, I think my belief is that uh, we should look at the issues um, individually and separately and say, where do we stand on helping the poor? Or where do we stand on providing a universal health care option so everybody can have access to good health care? Um, where do we stand on that? Where do we stand on climate change? Where do we stand on uh, abortion and pro-life issues? Um, you know, each of these issues, uh, no one party has all the right answers, right? Uh, or let's say all the Christian answers. And what you find, somewhat to your dismay as a Christian, is that there are some things in the Democratic platform that really appeal to me as a Christian. That liberal side of Jesus that, you know, we see so often in the Gospels. 
But there are some things on the Republican side of the ledger that really appeal to me as a Christian and seem to be consistent with my values. And it's not a binary decision, right? I mean, it ends up being a binary decision who you vote for, but you, you just have to weigh those things prayerfully. And I guess my belief is that we should speak as Christians to issues. Uh, we should speak to issues clearly and compassionately to those issues and let the politicians on both sides and both parties know where we stand on those issues. And then when we get into the voting booths, we have to make our own decision of the given the choices I have, which lever am I going to pull? Which person am I going to vote for? But I, I think what we've seen in the last uh, uh, few election cycles is more and more polarization that, you know, I'm on this team and they're on the other team and I want my team to win, but we don't criticize our own team, right? Because our own team has some issues that uh, are inconsistent with our values, but we overlook those and we point out the issues on the other team's side. I think it's really well said. C.S. Lewis has a great couple of paragraphs in there talking about political parties and why there shouldn't be such a thing as a Christian political party because, A, there's a lack of, cl of biblical clarity on some issues that, like you said, on whether it be income inequality or climate change or you, you name the or the, the budget deficit. I don't, there's just, I don't think there's a lot of scriptural clear, clarity around the budget deficit. Uh, okay. Um, now, I have my view, and I, I'd argue, I could argue my view all day long, but I don't think I can say, well, this is definitely what Scripture says on that particular issue. So that's one reason is there's no clarity uh, on some issues. The second is, if we do have that, we said this is what the Christian view of that issue is, then we have a lot of people that end up saying, well, that's that's not where I am. I must not be that. I must not be that in terms of my faith. And I think we have some of that today. There's a lot of people that have been turned away. My hope is that, like I said, that believers can be the people as this country that's fragmented and at each other's throats, that believers could be the sort of people that pull us back together. Unfortunately, I think it's been more we've 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 driven folks away from us. And, you know, the very term evangelical has come to mean a voting block instead of a view about, you know, what the what the good news means. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, the uh, <clears throat> one of the things I've struggled with as a both a business leader and a ministry leader is I believe it's as Christians. It's difficult sometimes to know how to take your faith into the workplace uh, with you. And I believe that there are a lot of Christians in leadership positions, uh, whatever their field of endeavor might be, who compartmentalize their faith, right? They're a Christian on the weekend and in the evenings, but they check their faith at the door when they enter the workplace on Monday. And uh, I just don't think God wants us to check our faith at the door or compartmentalize our faith. And so that brings up the question of a little... How does a person, we've been talking about that, you know, for the last half hour, but how does a person take their faith to work at them, to work with them, especially when their work culture could be toxic? What advice do you have, maybe especially for younger Christian leaders who struggle with, how do I take my faith to work in an appropriate way? First thing I'd, I would say this is, uh, don't be anxious and afraid um, that we have a sense of, oh, I have this faith that I I can't defend 
in the marketplace of ideas. But I think we do. I think we have the, the, the greatest truth ever told. And we, we have the greatest love story ever told at our, at our reach. Um, the story of Jesus coming to, to ransom a people uh, and giving his own life for it. Um, so we don't need to be anxious and afraid about, oh, I'm really not prepared uh, for this. The, the second thing is, can I remember this? The people at your workplace who you think, well, they think differently than I do. They're on the other side. They're not the enemy. Um, they're they're like we are. They're they're living in a world that is fallen and broken, and they are fallen and broken like we are. And they are hurting and looking for someone who can bring them some good news. And so I think the biggest mistake we make is thinking my workplace is a battlefield. Um, and we are in a battle, but it's not with the people that work with us who think differently than we do. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a, a strong believer that when we enter a workplace, this is where God has, quote, stationed us for this period of time. The place place where we work is the place where we have our ministry as as fellow believers. Um there's a, a quote from Second Corinthians 5.20 that I used to have stenciled on my, my door at um, World Vision. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So wherever you work, a hospital, a school, and government, and a corporate setting, God is making his appeal through you to the people that you are surrounded with and, and, and your co-workers there. And I think if we understand that, you know, we we can be that person in the workplace who is an island in the storm, you know, that there's a lot of stress in a lot of workplaces. There's, there's pressure to perform and to accomplish things. Uh, there's office politics, which are always, you know, challenging to navigate. But I've, I've been in some really tough workplaces. I've been in some really wonderful workplaces. I've never been in a place where things like integrity and courage and compassion and generosity and forgiveness uh, are are considered negative things, you know, and if you can be that person uh, in a stressful workplace, if you can be that island in the storm, uh, that's a great gift to your coworkers, right? The people that work with you every day, because you'll be the person they come to with a problem or to confide in or to get advice from. And it gives you an opportunity to to be a witness to them uh, and to show them that you you do walk to a different drummer than maybe the other people in that corporate culture and uh, and that you're going to stand as that person of integrity and compassion in the workplace. I think you nailed it, Rich, when you said you know that you've never seen a workplace that didn't welcome integrity and and compassion. Uh, and I'd add the other thing: a, a workplace that didn't welcome grace. Again, we're people that get grace, hopefully. I mean, we understand that, you know, without this incredible love and undeserved love, um, we wouldn't have any claim to to any kind of, of life after this or any kind of abundant life now. Uh, but we've been given that grace. Therefore, those people around us, when something goes wrong, rather than being the fifth person to jump on that person's neck, being the person that shows some grace um, when their life is falling apart, when their spouse is 
left them when their children are struggling, whatever it is, you know, life's really hard. I'm newsflash. I know it's no news to anybody. Uh, but the folks around you uh, that you're working with, that they they need your your grace and your compassion and your love. You know, one of the values I like to talk about for leaders is uh, forgiveness, which is kind of a dimension of grace. And a lot of people say, well, forgiveness is a leadership value. What do you mean? And what I mean is leaders, first of all, everybody appreciates a leader who is willing to ask for forgiveness when they've done something wrong or they've made a mistake, right? I made a mistake. I hope you'll forgive me. Um, uh, that's part of that humility thing. You're humble enough to admit your own mistakes and, and to, to realize that you might need to be forgiven by your coworkers. Uh, but also very powerful when a leader is willing to forgive someone that works for them. So if you, uh, let's say one of your staff uh, really messes something up, well, obviously it was a teachable moment, you mess this up, but uh, your forgiveness or your grace in that situation can be so uh, life-giving to someone who's made a mistake and has learned from it and, uh, and wants to move past it. And uh, so a, a good leader doesn't hold grudges, you know, and they, they clear the air and they, they offer their forgiveness, you know, to a person that's made a mistake. Let me shift gears. All right, here's one of the hardest, maybe the hardest question I'll ask you today. I have one more hard one, but... Um, oh, I got to go. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. If you were to stand before God today and he were to assess your long career and your many achievements, what do you think he might say were the things that you did as a leader that mattered most to him? Wow. You know, that, that's a really, that is a good and hard question. I, almost, I hate to always, I hate to put myself in, uh, you know, God, God's <laughs> God's ways shoes. Not, yeah, God's ways are not my ways. So I'm very aware of that. But I'm willing to bet that the answer to that question for all of us one day is going to be different than what we thought it was. We'll think it was, well, you know, we you put in this program or you did this or that, or you raised this much money and for, you know, uh, for developing nations or whatever it was that you did, uh, we might think that's it. I'm willing to bet it might be more what you were just putting your finger on, Rich. That sense of remember Judy who worked for you um, and the time you stopped and spent, you know, X minutes or you know th this amount of time uh, helping her, encouraging her, etc. Uh, I, I think it's it's going to be this. I think it's going to be the way we do the things more than the things we do. And I think mm -hmm. that's circling back to, you know, what I'm trying to talk about in, in my book is we don't, when it comes to political, to politics, we don't have a very good theology of our politics. And by that, I mean of why we do what we do. And when we think about Christians in politics, we think about, oh, well, here's where they are on abortion or on gay marriage or on religious freedom issues or whatever it is. But we don't talk a lot about how we do what we do. If you think about, you know, the Christian businessmen groups, they aren't teaching people how to make money in business. They're teaching them how to act like a believer. You know, mm -hmm. your high school group at your church, they're not talking to kids about how to make an A on their calculus, their tests are saying, here's what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Christ in high school. 
we haven't done that with politics, right? We haven't said, here's what it looks like to walk into the public square in a faithful way, whether you're running for office or whether you're just a concerned citizen who's, you know, who wants to be a, be a part of the solution in their city or state or, or country. And I think that's what we're, what we're missing is how we do what we do. And I, my sense is that's going to be what God's going to reflect on more one of these days with us than, than how many wins we had. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree with you more, Bill. Um, you know, um, here's a question you probably don't get asked very often, but I know your wife, Chrissy, who is smarter than you, actually. True. And uh, how important was her counsel or input when you were trying to make big decisions as governor? Yeah, it, it's a great question. And people, Chrissy and I, went, we met in college, went to college together. And uh, it's, I'm not, I don't just say this. Anybody who went to college with us would say, oh, you all got that backwards. Chrissy should be, <laughs> Chrissy should have been the governor. And, and I'm, that's honestly true. Uh, I had the, here's what the incredible gift Chrissy was for me. She, when I campaigned, she went everywhere with me. And then when we were um, in office, she came to cabinet meetings and was engaged on education issues and lots of other things that were really important to me. So that uh, when I when I got to one of those hard ones and you talked about it with all your key staff and you still couldn't quite figure out the right decision, when you came home at night, you were sitting at eating dinner or, um, you know, talking before you went to bed. Chrissy had the insight that was born of knowledge uh, because she knew the people. She knew the issues. And she was uh, incredibly helpful to me um, in helping me think through big issues. And still, to, I mean, the book I wrote, I mean, there was a lot of chapters that I wrote. And she'd say, you know, I'm not quite sure either that's exactly how that happened or that you're saying what you want to say. And it's the benefit of having somebody who's close to you, who's for you, kind of irrevocably for you, um, and then has that the insight and wisdom born out of, you know, not just her own walk with God, but what she has seen and walking alongside me. You know, I, I think uh, spouses of, you know, high-level leaders never get enough credit for right. what they— uh, what they contribute to the partnership that uh, a marriage is. And, you know, for, in my life, Renee was always kind of the spiritual bedrock for our family and really played a role in keeping my feet on the ground, you know, right. Uh, right. Not, not letting me get too big for my britches. And, right. and uh, I, I, but she was always, always wise. And I remember one time I was at Lennox and I was the chief operating officer at the time and uh, not the CEO, but one level down and I got offered a job by a, a toy company with a much higher salary. Um, and I was agonizing, you know, should I quit my job at Lennox? I'd been there seven or eight years, I think, at the time. And uh, and should I go to take this new job where I'm going to make a lot more money? And, and she sat down with me because she saw I was conflicted. And she said, uh, first of all, money is a lousy reason for doing anything, which when you think about it, is a very wise statement. That, right. She said, what would you do if you took money out of the equation? And um, and uh, and she said, you know, which company would you rather work for? How would you feel about leaving your coworkers um, that you've worked with for seven years? And uh, and when I thought about it that way, I thought I took money out of it. I don't want to leave Lennox. I love it here. I like the people I work with. I like what I'm doing. 
um, and I'm going to stay put. And uh, so I did. I turned down the higher paying job, which, you know, was probably not conventional wisdom to do that. Yeah. Um, a couple of years later, I got promoted to CEO at Lennox and, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. But but Renee was there with me at very important times, you know, with that with that wisdom. You know, I, I want to ask one last question, and this is maybe the hard question, but and then I want to read you uh, just a quote from my book and have you react to it. But first, the question, you are a longtime Republican. And given what you've said uh, today about your own defining values and, and what you've written about so eloquently in your book, what advice would you give your own party right now? Well, that's uh, that'd be at first. It'd be a long one because uh, <laughs> I think we're, um, you know, I don't think it's any secret that you know people talk about a lot of the the kind of split in the Republican Party between the people who uh, feel their loyalty more to uh, to Donald Trump and those who are maybe more of the traditional Republicans. But I don't. I don't know that that's what the issue is. I, I think the issue is this. I mean, I'm I'm going to all of it here, but I'm a Republican because there are certain things I, I believe in that Republicans have traditionally believed in. But I think what we've lost is this uh, sense of, again, what I'm what I'm trying the point I'm trying to make in the book that we've lost this sense of we're here to get to the right answer not just to get to our answer. And by the way, I think that's true of both political parties. But, you know, one of the things that, mm -hmm. you know, James talks about what's wisdom from above like, and he, he says it's, it's pure, it's peaceable, it's open to reason, uh, it's gentle, uh, it's full of mercy, um, it's impartial, and it's sincere. Well, I don't, if I asked you, about either political party and said, are they open to reason? You'd probably say not so much. Uh, and so we can start saying, mm -hmm. well, they're not open to reason either. Uh, but I always kind of start, think you should start with your own family. And one of the things I don't think we've done a good job of is being uh, pure, peaceable, open to reason, open to reason, um, impartial and sincere like James asks us to be. Uh, and you're that way when you're looking for the right answer, not just your answer. Yeah, no, that's good. And, and uh, you know, it, it is really we're in a difficult political season. And I think both parties have got to find a way uh, to work together and not be so polarized. You know, at the end of the day, we elect uh, our leaders uh, to get some things done right for the American people. And if they're not willing to compromise, if, if it's all about, you know, getting uh uh, clickbait on Twitter or, you know, Facebook, if it's all about getting reelected, then we're never going to have the serious comp conversations about compromise and how do we get an infrastructure bill done or how do we deal with climate change or how do we deal with immigration? We got to deal with it. Um, so I hope uh, I hope your advice to your party is something that uh, both parties will will take. Well, listen, I want to read this one quote from um, my book, Lead Like It Matters to God, and I just want to get your reaction to it. You, you can agree, disagree, or add to it, but uh, here it is. Consistently listening to the ideas and insights of other people, especially people who are different than we are, results in better decisions. It gets us out of the echo chamber of, of homogeneity. Diversity in an organization should not be seen as some box-checking requirement imposed by human resources. It should be aggressively pursued as a vital competitive edge that enhances performance. 
Yeah, I actually, I think you nailed it. And I think the way you define the mandate for diversity, I think will not, uh, it'll broaden the appeal of diversity and not narrow it. Because I think when most folks look around and say, would you really want the organization you lead to be the best it can be? Yes, well, then don't shut off this percentage of the population and say you won't hire them. And do consider the needs of this percentage of the population because they're part of your customer base. And so if you won't pick up just the pure um, moral reasons for, uh, for being more inclusive, then go with very practical ones that, you know, you can, you can broaden your base of who you hire and who you market to by truly having a diverse approach. But obviously think the moral approach is, is reason enough. You know, you mentioned C.S. Lewis earlier, and one of the, my favorite quotes of his is, uh, he said this, uh, you have never met a mere mortal. And uh, what he was saying is that the image of God is in every human being, and that uh, the people who surround you at work uh, bear the image of God, right? And uh, in their diversity, male, female, black, white, brown, old, young, um, that's the diversity of God's creation. And when, when we unleash the, uh, the power of that diversity, it, it does become a competitive advantage for any organization or committee or, uh, and enhances our decision-making. So, uh, well said, Bill. Well, Governor Bill Haslam, I can't thank you enough for making time to be uh, with us today. Uh, you know, as someone who's been in the arena for so many years, both in business and in politics, I think we all desperately need voices like yours and, and wisdom like yours. So thank you for being here and may God bless you in this next season of your life. Thanks, Rich. It's always great to be with you. I'm grateful for your friendship and uh, thanks for helping on the book. It won't actually come out till May, but you, like everything else, you can pre-order on Amazon. That's right. I would encourage people to, to pre-order that book, Faithful Presence by Bill Haslam, available for pre-order wherever books are sold. Thanks for joining Rich Stearns today on the podcast and check out his new book, Lead Like It Matters to God, Values-Driven Leadership in a Success-Driven World. In this book, Rich draws on his experience as a CEO in three different organizations to offer important insights and advice for Christian leaders. Learn more about the 17 leadership values that can transform your own leadership effectiveness. Lead Like It Matters to God is available in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats.